This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 152 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and yesterday I ordered nine metres of bees. You heard me. Bees! That's a very Job Bluth statement. <laughs> I was I on a segue at the time. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. Explain, please. You ordered bees by the metre, Jen. No, they Bees they're, for what? They are very like bees for our garden, for our little wedding reception. Uh, okay, I see. That makes more sense. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I am newly vaccinated. Hooray! Hurrah. Mm. She's the first in. She's feeling the side effects now, but otherwise, good job. I'm feeling very, very, very hungry and nobody warned me that that was the side effect of this. <laughs> Do you know, I asked a woman who was there, like, wiping down the seats yesterday that people were sitting on and, uh, you know me, ever the journalist, hi, why are you here and why are you doing this? I said, are you doing this out of the goodness of your heart? And she said, well, I do get a free lunch, but mostly, yes, out of the goodness of my heart. And I said, why? And she said, it makes me feel less powerless than I have previously. So if anyone is one of the people who's working at a vaccination centre, well done. Like, well done for yeah, totally. your time for doing that. Right now, though, if you saw her again, would you wrestle her for her free lunch? <laughs> yeah actually probably i might have to go and volunteer just so i can yeah have more meals more meals i'm jen offered and i finally got to do a mum and baby hangout last week and now i'm sick so yeah business as usual children are germ farms oh. i warned you of this when you had one <laughs> no it's the next five years of my life isn't it just five uh, yeah come on jen oh look jen's got when some optimism they, when do they have a Fucking immune system, I don't know. I think, like, it's just being around other kids. It's until they're at least 32, oh, I think. God. Yeah. Sorry. What have I done? <laughs> yeah. Wait till she gives you nits. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, no, that just made me really itchy in the head. <laughs> Later on, I chat with Laura Parmiani, Artistic Director of Legal Aliens Theatre Company, about its series of podcasts turning assumptions around migrant women on their head. I speak to journalist and author Helen Russell about why we need to stop fearing sadness. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking Super Leagues, Megabucks and Red Roses. And in Rated or Dated, we're watching Gregory's Girl. Modern girls, modern boys. It's tremendous. But first, dodgy dealings, hope and hard work and great knobs of the ocean. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. We'd like to thank our mums and dads for having sex. <laughs> I'm pretty sure listeners can hear the face I'm pulling. Yeah. Daniel, you're Oscar winning awesome, but I need to get far away from that thought. Uh, keep talking, <laughs> Jen. <laughs> okay. Mick, 
who would you least like to have your competence and integrity questioned by? Hmm. Jeff Bezos. I suppose he's actually quite competent, to be fair. FIFA. Any member of the current cabinet? Hmm. I would say Boris Johnson, except he's the person whose competence and integrity is being questioned. Big surprise, right? (laughs) I've always thought he seemed like a man of... No, I haven't. (laughs) I imagine that he was quite surprised, however, when his former advisor, Dominic Suspicious Tote Bag Carrier Cummings, launched a scathing attack on him at the weekend. There are so many different things you could have put in between Dominic and Cummings. Do you know what? I was going to say that. I was like, there's so many things you could have... But the thing that I always think about him is like how like weird he looks carrying a little canvas tote bag. You could have stopped at how weird he looks. Yes, he does look really weird, but it's the, the tote bag thing. I find it... Unnerving. Yeah, on a man who's like advising the Prime Minister. I don't want to see it. I, I want to see a fucking briefcase and that's... Anyway... We've gone on a tangent here. So (laughs) the attack was in relation to, I don't know, do you want to guess? Again, there's there's so much. Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't in relation to him failing to disclose how many children he has or how many extramarital affairs he's conducted. Sorry, judgy. Unfair play to judge. But also, I like the idea that you think he's just not disclosing numbers as opposed to doesn't know himself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> good point i reckon he's got a ballpark figure but uh, <laughs> he does look a bit like a ballpark in fact it was about the revelations last week that johnson sent texts to sir james dyson assuring him that his employees would not have to pay extra tax if they came to the uk to make ventilators to help the nhs at the peak the first one of the covid pandemic johnson responded via text i will fix it which does sound a bit dodgy, doesn't it, to be fair? But mm-hmm. anyway, that was in response to Dyson asking if Singapore-based staff would see a change in tax status if it went ahead. Um, hello, says Bojo. <laughs> What's dodgy or rum or weird about trying to secure more ventilators during the pandemic? More dodgy, says number 10. Who the fuck leaked this? <laughs> Back to Cummings, who says, uh-uh, not me. But he does also crucially claim that there's a fuck ton more where that came from. Mm. For example, and this is dodgy and weird, I'm not sure about rum because I've never heard that expression before in my life. I don't know how you've not heard that expression. Oh, he's a rumman. Have you heard it before? Yeah, loads. Oh, I thought it was some weird, like when he says piffle and stuff like that and you're like no one fucking says that anyway cummings alleges that johnson asked tory donors to pay for renovations to the downing street flat doesn't ask doesn't get right (laughs) now ben wallace remember him he's Uh, the defense secretary no me either he says boris johnson complied with the rules over said refurbishment okay cool i'll definitely take his word (laughs) for it and not ask for any kind of independent inquiry Incidentally, Wallace also denies Monday's Daily Mail front page splash that Boris is accused by an unidentified source of saying during a meeting in October that he would rather, and I quote, let the bodies pile high than enter into a third UK lockdown. So Boris, your people are waiting for you on Oxford Street, babes. Well, well, there's at least four different podcasts that could come out of this. Uh, there's a there's a very chatty rattle too in uh, Downing Street, isn't there? It's a lot, isn't it? I might go as far as to say that someone has got their fucking knives out for the PM. 
Let's go over to America. On Tuesday, the 20th of April, following three weeks of testimony, it took the jury just over nine hours to find white former police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murdering George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for more than nine minutes. Nothing is going to bring George Floyd back to his family, his friends, to the world, but this verdict, the right verdict, is hopefully a step forward for justice. It was a murder in full light of day and it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see, said US President Joe Biden. And can we just take a moment to note how we barely mentioned Joe Biden since his inauguration? And that's because he's not doing mad shit in capital letters on a daily basis. And if this particular moment in American history isn't the one to fully appreciate that we're not hearing what Donald Trump thinks about it all, I'm not sure what that would be. Anyway, Chauvin was found guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. We've mentioned before on the podcast that the American justice system and the various degrees of murder and manslaughter is complicated to bend your head around, but the take-home from this is that Chauvin could face up to 40 years in prison. In remarks to the nation just hours after the verdict was announced, standing alongside Vice President Kamala Harris at the White House, Biden called systemic racism a stain on our nation's soul after Veep Harris demanded that the lives of Americans of colour be valued in our education system, in our healthcare system, in our housing system, in our economic system, in our criminal justice system, in our nation, full stop. Because yes, racism in the American police forces is a huge problem, but it's the tip of the iceberg and there is a lot of work to be done. Basic accountability isn't a massive ask, and yet time and time again, Americans of colour are made to feel that it is. This verdict really is a small step forward for hope. Hope that this is a start on the road to true justice and accountability, because fuck knows for the black men, women and children who have suffered so unfathomably, and for society as a whole, it needs to be. But would we be here right now if this murder had not been filmed? I don't know that we would. Darnella Frazier demonstrated huge courage in filming what she knew was wrong and she deserves credit for enabling this verdict to happen. I'd add that there's something else that would make a huge difference in America and that is, and no surprises here, gun control. Before we even get to the blatant batshittery of the Second Amendment, when you look at it with even a smidgen of logic, guns on the streets means guns on the cops means guns on the street means etc. 106 people are killed every day by guns in the country, something which Biden has called an epidemic. And gun control is an uphill task, but Biden is on it to some extent, enacting new measures which include efforts to set rules for certain guns, bolster background checks and support local violence prevention through an executive order. And by using an executive order, it means he doesn't need approval from Congress, which is currently the only way around things, as right now there are not enough votes in Congress to enact even modest new gun laws. It is another small hopeful step, though. I'll take it. The point about guns is like, yeah, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind whatsoever that we wouldn't see more situations like that over here between the police and people of colour. Like, there's there's no doubt in my mind at all. It's just the fact that, obviously, with a gun, the the immediacy of it is, you know, if you get shot, there's a a good chance you're dying. So um, it's awful. It's very much here as well. And I think, like, we we can't be complacent about that. Oh, yeah, 100% agree with you. Yeah. Anyway, would you like some good news, Mick? Oh, for fuck's sake, yes, please, Jen. Get it in my ears. Well, you may remember some time ago a lockdown baby boom was predicted. 
fair play. It's not like anyone's had much else to do, though. I wouldn't necessarily recommend giving birth <laughs> during a global pandemic unless you happen to be a sea creature, in which case I say knob away, which is exactly <laughs> what the aquatic beasts of sea life centres across the UK have been doing. Do cow nose rays have knobs? I don't know. Would you like to know, Jenster? <laughs> I'd like to know. <laughs> well, good, because I'm going to tell you. Cow nose rays, and indeed all rays, have two knobs. Shut up, really? Sort of. At sexual maturity, male rays have external sexual organs called claspers, visible near the base of the tail, and effectively these are two penis-like organs that lie within modified pelvic fins and are used to internally fertilise the female. Thank you, practicalfishkeeping.co.uk. <laughs> That is practical. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to let you get back to the story, uh, but, uh, you know, thanks for making my Google search history (laughs) as suspect as the time I checked the phrase wet as an otter's pocket to prove a point. (laughs) They have been doubly knobbing then. Anyway, um, Caldo's rays have been making the most of their time out of the public eye, says the (laughs) Sea Life Centre. Are they shy? (laughs) Yeah, they don't like to do it when there's people watching. They, you I know, tell you yeah. what, if, if human men had two knobs, I don't think they'd be shy about it. <laughs> <laughs> so the Trafford branch have welcomed not one, but two very rare aquarium births of the little critters. One of them was named Bevan after the founder of the NHS. And that's nice, isn't it? Like that. Approve. But, but that's not all. There are pyjama sharks in Scarborough and guitar sharks in Hunstanton. And apart from anything else, now I know of the existence of pyjama and guitar sharks. And that's just bloody lovely. I feel like they should form a band. Yeah, I agree. Did you know that there were pyjama sharks and guitar sharks? Guitar sharks is new to me, but pyjama sharks, yeah, I knew about them. Oh, I love a shark, lovely. Jen. You know that. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask whether data from 18th century France is a reliable marker of a woman's usefulness. I mean, I could make this a very short section by just recording the noise my head makes as it repeatedly hits a brick wall. (laughs) But let's go a little more in depth. A new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association reveals the number of reproductive years for women in the United States has increased from 35 to 37.1. Why so? Well, it turns out the average age of menopause has gone up, while the average age of the first period has gone down, leading to more baby-making time. An average of 37.1 years of baby-making time, in fact, which kind of raises the question... What's that age-old nonsense about 35 being the age women fall off a fertility cliff all about then? Age-old is right. That magic number, after which you're officially described as being of advanced maternal age or a geriatric mother, given dire warnings about how hard it will be to get pregnant and all the problems you and your baby might face if you do, and with any pregnancy immediately labelled high risk and subject to extra monitoring, is outdated and unscientific because it's based on a bunch of church birth records from 300 years ago, when life expectancy was 30 years old. (laughs) But you know, if it shames and scares women, don't fix it, as the saying goes. I am going to fix it though. Well, me and a much more recent bit of research from 2004, which looked at 770 European women and found that with sex at least twice a week, 78% of women aged 35 to 40 conceived within a year, a stat not far off 84% of women aged 20 to 34. 
Yes, the quality of eggs decline over time, whereas sperm ages like good cheese. Oh, wait, of course it fucking doesn't. The fact is, fertility is complicated. It's affected by loads of different variables and therefore incredibly different for each individual. Giving up the number 35 as a shame bell for women seems the very least the medical profession could do. I would just like to say, as some anecdotal evidence for this, that I gave birth to my first child at the age of 37. And I would say that certainly in one of my local mums groups, I was probably on the younger side, Mm -hmm. actually, of a lot of the mums. And that's hackney for you, lots of, you know, professional women. But like, yeah, it's, it's bollocks, isn't it? It's absolute bollocks. I am joined by journalist and author Helen Russell. Hello, Helen. Hello. Helen, you are here today to talk to me about your new book, How to Be Sad, which we're going to come on to in a minute. But I wanted to ask you, first of all, reading around your book a little bit, you have spent eight years studying cultural approaches to emotions, which I thought sounded quite interesting. And I know that you live in Denmark now, so perhaps that's that's part of this. I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, and it definitely does have, have a real link to the Denmark thing. So I lived and worked in London for 12 years. I was a journalist. I was at Marie Claire, Lock Code at UK. Um, and then one day out of the blue, my husband came home and told me he'd been offered his dream job working for Lego in Denmark. And we knew nothing about Denmark at the time beyond Nordic Noir and the fact that it kept being voted the happiest country in the world. So I started with my journalist head on looking into this and discovered that this tiny country, just 5.6 million people, had actually been voted one of the happiest countries in the world. And studies going back to the 1970s, so it wasn't just this recent thing. So we visited one weekend, just checked the place out, and noticed immediately that things were a bit different. People were more relaxed. There was a better work-life balance. People spent a lot of time outdoors. And I had been quite stressed in London. I was quite burnt out. I'd been having fertility treatment to try and start a family for years. I was broken. So it felt as though this other life possibility had been dangled in front of us. So we went for it. I resigned from my job. I went freelance. We moved all of our life in boxes across the North Sea. And I started to investigate this, this Danish happiness phenomenon. I was working, writing for UK newspapers. And then I wrote a book about my experiences, looking at different areas of Danish life to find out what they did differently. And so that became my first book, The Year of Living Danishly, which was published all around the world, which is lovely. But I started to hear from readers all around the world saying, well, this is what they do in Denmark, but here in my country, in Brazil, we like to do this. And, you know, in um, in Portugal and in Spain. And, and so I started really gathering these ideas together, these different cultural concepts of happiness and exploring what what that meant, what the good life meant around the world. Different countries have different approaches, more perhaps some are more individualistic, some are more communal. And so really, I spent the last eight years really doing deep dives into these different cultural approaches, which threw up interesting things about sadness as well. So that's mm. that's where I came to when I started writing this. How do the Brits, where do we kind of fall on the scale of, of happiness? <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> not brilliant, um, I would have to say. I think... Um, we do cheerfulness pretty well in the UK, I think, but we're not always necessarily properly happy. And, you know, long working hours and we have the NHS, which is fantastic, but there are more and more challenges around access to healthcare, access to education, all of these structural things that have a massive impact on happiness that I think in the UK people are sometimes unwilling to look at. 
in the sort of blurb of your book, it says, After eight years of investigating happiness, Helen Russell discovered a startling fact. Most of us are terrified of being sad. What did you discover? Back when we could travel, I would talk about my work around the world and I'd um, do events and go on panels. But people would come up to me afterwards and, and talk to me and, and often they would share because I, I write quite personally. So people would share their own experiences and stories. And it, it kept coming up time and again, people asking me in a very vulnerable way how they can be happy. And these are often at times in their life when this really wasn't possible. I had people asking, how can I be happy when they just lost a loved one or they had been made redundant or lost their home? or you know had caring responsibilities that felt overwhelming and it, it really struck me that these were people who were I guess a self-selecting group because they had come to an event I'd done or they had been reading my work and so they were so interested in the pursuit of happiness that they had developed almost a phobia of feeling sad and there was a feeling that we must try and be happy above all else when actually happiness you know comes in pockets it's these delicious moments but it's not all the time and so I felt a real need to redress that really and really sometimes we, we need to be sad sadness is important it's a message that can tell us what is wrong and what to do about it and I think culturally if we are scared of being sad when sadness inevitably happens which it does to all of us then we are less equipped to know how to handle it because it, it feels overwhelming and if we don't talk about it enough then it can feel very isolating for those experiencing it and, and hard for people around them to to be able to support in a way that we might want to. So I felt like this was something really important to talk about. And this was pre-COVID. And in the last year, I think it is it has borne out that many of us are lacking that connection and many of us are, are finding that we have to get better at having difficult conversations and to sit with a level of discomfort sometimes and that we are all going to experience some sadness. And so if there's a way to that we can help each other and ourselves, then that would be advantageous. I personally have a problem with the very Instagrammable, tweetable, it's okay not to be okay sentiment, because I don't think it is okay not to be okay. I think if the message is actually, look, if you're not okay, you can go, there's help available to you, there's people you can talk to, there's stuff you can do about it. I think if that is what we want people to do, then the message that it's okay to accept not being okay, I guess, I, I think is a dangerous one. And, and the reason I think that, uh, I guess, is because as people who listen to the podcast regularly know, and as we've discussed previously, I lost my eldest brother, Stephen, to suicide when he was 25. And so I feel quite strongly that we should encourage people to seek help where appropriate. I wondered how that fits in with like the ethos of your book. Firstly, I'm so sorry, Jen. That's, I'm really sorry for your loss. And I think when I spoke to people who worked with with suicide charities and and other people who had, who had lost people to suicide one message that kept coming up was that um wouldn't it be more helpful if we were able to talk about how how we were feeling so when we were feeling these low these low feelings or low moods or when life events happened that really took took our knees out from under us that we were able to talk about it more and i think that in a society where the pursuit of happiness and a sort of a very narrow definition of happiness as well that is very upbeat, perhaps kind of jazz hands, it's it's success, it's Duran Duran on a yacht, um, you know, that then it's going to be even harder to say, actually, I'm really not feeling good at the moment. I, I really need some help. And for, for men, especially, we've seen statistics that it's it's often harder for men to talk about their emotions, that if we don't start saying 
everybody will experience these sad times. But yeah, there, there is help if you can, if you can talk about it or if, you know, a friend can sit with you in that sadness so that you don't feel so alone. I think that's what I want to get across that, that we will all experience a degree of sadness and losses and heartache in our life. But if we can find a way to articulate it or even a way to recognize those, those times around the, around the people around us and the people that we love, then we are better placed to be able to help. I mean, you're not saying, obviously, that, that you know, being a bit sad and, and being depressed are the same thing, are you? No, not at all. And having experienced both, I can, yeah, categorically confirm that, you know, depression is a chronic mental illness that needs help. But sadness, on the other hand, can be awakening. And it's the temporary emotion that we all feel on occasions we've been hurt or something is wrong in our lives. And sadness is a message. It can tell us what's wrong and what to do about it. But we have to listen and we have really lost touch with how to listen, I think, as a society. And do you think then that the danger is that if the sadness isn't acknowledged, it can become a bigger thing than just sadness, in inverted commas? Yeah, that's certainly true. I think in two respects. So firstly, if we try to suppress our negative thoughts, studies show that that doesn't work, it makes us feel worse. And then also, if as as a society, as a culture, we are not okay with sadness, we are not good with sadness, then things tend to get escalated. So people feel more isolated, because that we don't feel understood. And then if if that sadness is pathologized and, and told that it needs to be fixed, then there can be a reluctance to to kind of come forward. The book is part memoir and part manifesto. And you do talk about some really personal things that you went through. And I want to sort of start at the start because I think the stuff that about childhood particularly is really interesting. A really tragic thing happened in your family. Your baby sister died of sudden infant death syndrome when you were three. And then subsequently your parents split not long afterwards. Those things that happened to you at a very young age, they were quite formative for you. And I thought some of the stuff that you you said about that was was really interesting about children and, and how if you don't explain things to them they will make stuff up. So you came out of it with a feeling that it, you were somehow responsible for the unhappiness that your, your parents were experiencing. I, I think I was very, very sort of keen to, that there's, I, I hope there is sort of universality in the specifics. So this is what happened to me, but everybody has been through different things. And yeah, I think I grew up thinking, oh, it must, it's something to do with me. You know, maybe I am unlovable. If I had been better, if I had been a better daughter, then I might have, been able to keep things together or perhaps it would have been better if I had died instead of my sister and I had just had these beliefs sort of my whole life and then digging into it uh, with therapy over the years and then for this book you know it became increasingly clear that this I was not special at all this is a very common reaction for preschoolers especially is that children do tend to as you say if people don't explain things to children they will make them up and what they make up is often far worse than than the truth. So however painful it is trying to talk about difficult things with children, if we can do it in an age-appropriate way, that will always be more helpful than trying to gloss over it or pretending everything's fine. And yeah, I certainly believed I was responsible for my, my parents splitting up and then I didn't. My dad hasn't really been in my life. So um, up to the age of 13, I, I didn't see him anymore. And and that's very much something that I took on. Well, that's, that's me. That, that I am unlovable. As opposed to, of course, you know, our parents are adults, all of us, you know, we are, we are part of their lives, but they are men and women and, you know, or 
people who have their own stuff going on. So that was really helpful. And I think, as you say, what happens to us in early childhood can have a massive impact on our lives and, and really influence the way we approach things. And I've always been someone who's craved certainty, who's looked for that stability and that sense of certainty that I really felt was lacking growing up. But being aware of that as an adult and now as a parent myself feels quite important because now I'm mindful of it and I can see, oh, I'm tending towards this direction or I am uh, reacting in this way to something because of, of my own biases there. So, yeah, it's been helpful to understand that. And I hope and I've heard from, from other readers that it's been helpful to to yeah, look back. And there's been a lot of study in recent years about the drugs versus not drugs approach to mental health. And I firmly believe there is a place for, for both. And if people are on medication, it's working for them, then that's fantastic. But there's um, Dr. Lucy, Lucy Johnston is a, is a great uh, advocate for the idea of asking not what's wrong with you, but what has happened to you. We all have stuff. We all have had experiences or, or times in our life that have a massive impact on the way we feel, the way we behave. And I think it's important to look at that and also the circumstances and the structural things like, you know, like housing, like our education, so that it's not just all on us and something to be fixed in some way i've never ever thought of it like that before but absolutely it's not what's wrong with you it's what's happened to you because we're all a product of our experiences aren't we i guess sort of related to that i have a young daughter she's 10 months old now she's my first child and yeah one of the things i think about a lot at the moment i think because of what happened with my brother i really fear her sadness and i think a lot about how am i going to explain to her what happened obviously we're a long way off having to have that discussion but, but like how do I make her not be sad basically how can I make her not kill herself and that is that's that's huge and also having you know you're still postpartum 10 months on that's that's a lot of going on and a lot of emotions and hormones I completely understand the compulsion to make everything right and even after writing this book my son um he saw our dog die when he was three years old and so it just had a massive, massive impact on him. And he's he's very worried about about me dying in particular. And so it's something that we tend to talk about quite a lot. And of course, the compulsion is to say something like, I'm never going to die. Don't worry about it. And he also has that thing of certainty, like, well, will we always live in this house? Sweetheart, we might not always live in this house. We, we don't, you know. And so trying to explain in age-appropriate language, that we will all die and that and yes that is sad um and then i completely understand how with your brother you are you are i guess hyper vigilant and hyper aware of wanting to protect her mental health and her the way she feels about yeah and others around me like i i would say that i definitely on on the basis of that experience i definitely do fear sadness because i understand what what it can lead to i suppose yeah and as you said, you know, as we talked about, it, we are all a product of our mm. environment. So I was hyper vigilant when the children were small. My mum checked on me in bed every night till I was 16 to, to check I was still breathing. And I'm a big one of checking, like nothing near your face and covering to make sure everyone could breathe. And I spoke to someone whose who's mum was in a, a, a car crash when he was three um, and was in a coma. And so just his whole childhood, he was, I've just got to be aware it could be danger at every turn. So if, I think firstly understanding that that's perfectly natural that you're feeling like that. And then I, I really now feel that it's really important to be able to normalize sadness when children are children so that 
when they fall over, it's it's not oh you're fine up again. It's like oh that must have that must have hurt. So that they then have the vocabulary and to talk about that. So there's some really interesting research that often when when children have their emotions minimized, they stop talking about them because they think well maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong to feel like this. If they if they if they say that they hate something, they're told it's only dislike. Or if they say that um, something really hurts, they're told it's fine or, or get up or don't cry. And I think that isn't helpful now I'm increasingly convinced and there's lots of studies into this that if we can try and give children that vocabulary to talk about how they're feeling and not shut down when they're upset but be with them in it they're not you know there was the whole idea of like the naughty step or time out for quite a long time with kids and now very much the thinking is time in that you can be sad and you can be having a tantrum but I'll be sitting next to you and I'll be here with you and I'm not afraid of your negative so-called negative emotions I'm not afraid of your sadness I, I can handle it and that means you can handle it too because if we show our kids that it's something terrible then it will be something that they fear as well mm. so the, the research that I have found most compelling is around that and that's now what I try and do I don't always do it right but that's certainly it, it's try and you I can see in the playground I can see other kids being told it's fine get up get up get up and I'm and I you know when the blood is trickling down the knee yeah that must really hurt sorry about that wow that looks really sore um, so from the physical to the to the emotional, like when a friend doesn't play with them that day, you want to make it better, but I have to really fight that urge. It's so interesting what you said about the naughty step and the time out and stuff like that, because you're absolutely right. When you think about it logically, if you teach a child that their emotions are bad, so whatever for whatever reason they're throwing a tantrum, like, I, you know, I want a kinder egg or whatever, like, sure, obviously we don't want to encourage that kind of behaviour, but... But if we teach them that their emotional response to something is bad, they're going to learn that in order to avoid the punishment, they must repress it rather than actually talk about it and say, well, I feel like this because of this. Yeah, I think that's really true. And you're way off this stage. But for another book, I ended up speaking to, um, bear with me, an FBI hostage negotiator. (laughs) Found that actually... um, you can use similar techniques that are used in hostage negotiation when you are dealing with, for instance, toddler tantrums, because you have to like get on the floor with them and be with them and show them that you're there, that you're not afraid of this. You're not going to try and overpower. You are, you are meeting them there. And Philippa Perry is very good on this. The book you wish your, your parents had read. It's on the list. Um, Don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's a really good one of, of meeting them and picking picking your battles as well. My daughter walked to school with an Easter bonnet on, uh, some gold sandals, and she's she wants to be a superhero, so she makes everything a cape. She had like a tablecloth around her, and she was carrying her coat, and you could just see all the other parents looking at me. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> There's a doctor who says that, that basically children are educated out of knowing what their feelings are. And we say this a lot about men, particularly in society that that the only thing the only emotion they're allowed to experience and express is rage basically and that's why we have the problems that we have in society with you know a bunch of things like male suicide male male violence but we don't talk about that very much in relation to women i think traditionally yes and i think it's really great people trying not to do that but i think with with the point with with men being allowed to pick anger as their Mm. emotion from the emotional spectrum i think Conversely, women are often dissuaded from anger. And there's lots of, of research showing that little girls are still raised that that they shouldn't be angry. And so we'll often go to frustration. And interestingly, I spoke to 
the Tier professor from the Netherlands, Dr. Ad Vingerhoots, uh, and he said that this idea that women cry more, that actually men and women cry the same amount, mostly, but that because women are socialized out of expressing anger, they will often cry from frustration and a feeling of powerlessness, yeah. which certainly rings so many bells. Yeah. I know when I come back park or if someone like, I just, if something goes wrong and I, I don't feel I have the power to fix it, it's that weeping from frustration. So girls are educated out of knowing what their anger is. So what you just said there about frustration is absolutely like bang on the money. The amount of times I've wanted to cry because I felt frustrated about something or even angry. That links back to the whole, if a child is crying and you tell them don't cry, or if um, if someone falls over and you say, up again, you're fine. Yeah, they, that is being educated out of your feelings because you have a natural impulse as a child. If you're in pain, you want to express it. If you are hurting uh, emotionally, you want to express it. So I think the way we speak to children is still, yes, often educating them out of really knowing their emotions. And then that takes so much work later on. So if we could just now start to let children have their emotions and help them label them and help them emotionally regulate, we would all be better off. Helen, so your book, How to Be Sad, Everything I've Learned About Getting Happier by Being Sad Better, is available now, published by The Fourth Estate, and you've also got a podcast series that goes with it, which features lots of excellent guests who we have also featured on Standard Issues, such as Holly McNish, Yomi Adegaki, the brilliant Helen Thorne of Scummy Mummies. Are you going to keep going with that podcast? Yeah, I've got a taste for it. Yeah, so Series 2 has just launched, and... I think especially in this year where we've been lacking that connection, as you know, it's so lovely to be able to have just a focused conversation with someone. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying that. Where can we follow you on social media to see what you're up to with the book and future projects and the podcast? Thank you so much. Yeah, I am on at Ms. Helen Russell, MS Helen Russell, double S, double L, um, on all of the socials. Thank you so much, Helen. Hello, I am joined by Lara Parmiani, Artistic Director of Legal Aliens Theatre Company. Lara, hello. Hello. First of all, let's talk about theatre with the pandemic. Legal Aliens has been around for 10 years, but it has been a really tricky year for theatre. How have you been? It's been really hard. Well, it's been really hard for me personally because uh, actually I got sick with COVID almost straight away. So I had that and then, you know, I lost members of my family. So it's been personally quite a full-on thing. But as a company, also it was a little bit traumatising because last year in early March, we presented a show called Closed Lands at Vault Festival and it was a premiere and we thought, oh, you know, after this, you know, a festival is always a, a way to maybe try things out and experiment and then you think, oh, we're going to develop it and maybe tour it in the summer. And of course, COVID struck and all that was scrapped straight away and it was a show that was also quite topical and so it's not even something that you can say okay we do it in two years you know it feels Mm -hmm. like we wanted to do it there and then and that wasn't possible we've been running workshops for migrants and refugees in, in space in Tottenham those were not happening so it was a lot about trying to reinvent ourselves 
the thing that we managed immediately to kind of keep going were the workshops because we decided to experiment with running workshops on Zoom. And we, we have this kind of free sessions for migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, and pretty much anyone who can't afford an acting class, really, because sometimes we have people turning up and say, listen, you know, I'm British. Will you have me? <laughs> I'm like, oh, think. <laughs> we don't discriminate against people. <laughs> you know, acting classes are so fucking expensive. And, and so it's a great thing to be able to offer that kind of space and so we went on zoom with that which actually was quite good because we managed to get a lot of participants who were not london based Mm -hmm. and we realized that a lot of asylum seekers are completely sent in the middle of nowhere and um where they're completely isolated they don't have anyone speaks their language so actually we got more people so we were very happy with that and but trying to reinvent you know given a workshop that was very often based on kind of physicality on Zoom was quite something. And then, yeah, then we were trying to see what else could happen. And I think the only good thing that happened in theatre, which I, to be fair, I'm not sure whether it's going to continue. I hope, but I'm not completely positive, is that there was a lot of talking all of a sudden about reinventing theatre and uh, people made themselves quite available so we were part of like the discourse on uh, you know how can we create a different kind of theater and we were uh, the founding members of a new organization called migrants in theater so we did that a lot trying to lobby for kind of a wider representation of artists yeah that happened and because people were or at home pretty much there was a lot of time to have all those conversations even with people in position of power so even through conversations with some very kind of open uh, artistic directors and I I really want to mention the New Diorama Theatre and David Byrne for being incredibly you know supportive of artists mm-hmm. we were encouraged to put in an application for another kind of Arts Council grant just doing something digitally which is why we decided to do the podcast and trying to kind of see how we could translate our approach to theatre to purely kind of audio environment that was last year pretty much for us you have adapted and you've gone into audio so first of all a big welcome to the world of podcasting come on in (laughs) the water's lovely and Things I Am Not is a collection of 10 original audio monologues from international professional female artists who have made the UK their home. And the series explores migrant experiences with immigration, racism, misogyny and like loads more. I mean, I can guess a lot of the reasons you felt compelled to commission this now. <coughs> Brexit, <coughs> no racism in Britain. Yeah, whatever. But can you tell us why and how Things I Am Not came about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I have to kind of confess it wasn't my idea to begin with. Like, I, I have a co- <laughs> I have a colleague and friend called Emanuela Lia. She's uh, she's an actor uh, originally from Greece. She came to me about a year ago saying, "Listen, I wrote this piece. I used lockdown to to write a monologue called Things I'm Not, but you know, I don't know what to do with it. What do you think that this could have a life somewhere?" And so I talked about it with Becca McFadden who's my associate artistic director and we thought well what a brilliant title and what a brilliant provocation we are a group of theatre makers we are all women in the core team why don't we actually use this provocation to ask more artists like us to tell us about the thing that they are not 
by starting with this kind of negative actually affirming the things that they are yeah because i think that's that's it's about really getting rid of the stereotypes and then saying this is what we really want to talk about it felt really timely there's a, a lot of different uh, things that happening at the same time obviously you know the me too movement never really died and it keeps returning you know all this kind of talk about how women uh, obviously keep being the subject of all this kind of violence but apart from the big violence and about and also you know the hostile environment and and Brexit and all the new legislation do, do you know what it's just migration is a kind of, uh, you know, what do you call it? Those kind of words where, you know, you say to a dog and everyone, like, mm, you know, there is a kind, there seems to be a part of the population that needs that. responds to it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> then there's that whistle and, and go, you know. And, and, and... <laughs> she just did an excellent impression of Nigel Farage. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? And and it's still happening. And, and so... But it's always talking about whether it's women, whether it's migrants, whether in very general terms and in the very macro terms. So people think about people arriving on a dinghy and people who are destitute asking for benefits. And there's all this kind of uh, big images. And what people don't understand is actually the day-to-day reality of people who are migrants in this country. Some of us have been here for a long time and who keep actually meeting all this kind of microaggressions that... I really kind of, uh, you know, it's like drop, 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 you know. Next week, there's going to be a monologue by um, uh, a um, South Korean artist. It's beautiful because she says, I keep saying sorry and I keep saying I'm okay, but I'm not okay. And it feels like, yes, of course, you know, I am not in a, in one of those kind of uh, horrible situations where you know you're completely destitute and 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 arriving with nothing escaping from the war but that doesn't mean that people like us don't actually meet constantly situations that make you feel really small and make you feel like you can't say anything almost it's mm-hmm. like oh you know but at the end of the day i am here maybe i should just be grateful and i think especially as women as women very often we're made to feel like that anyway and as a foreign woman in this country sometimes it's even more we gave artists this kind of freedom of talking about this negative getting to a positive as they pleased and i think the beauty was to find out that even though these 10 people worked completely on their own individually then when we read all all the the monologues there were some recurrent themes and recurrent words even mm-hmm. that we found quite extraordinary so i thought okay we really tapped into an experience that is there is shared by many people but nobody really talks about and so we became really excited <laughs> about what we found I wanted to ask you, actually, because obviously these 10 women who have made these pieces of theatre are from all over the world. And like you say, there are common themes. I've listened to five of the podcasts and even even just in listening to half of them, there are common themes that come up. And so I wanted to ask you what you thought those common themes were. There is this sense of having to be constantly adapting my monologue that I wrote one is called Shape Shifting and uh, Sabrina Richmond who is an artist from South Africa who is going to be the last one we, we didn't 
talk about it and she uses the same word shape-shifting right. and uh, and it's like you know i'm from italy she's a black woman from south africa instead we pick the same word there is this theme the theme of feeling isolated and stupid because you didn't speak as a native person that, that's another theme you know it is how people make you feel when when you make a mistake or the the fear I think three of us talk about the fear of talking on the phone and somebody give you, gives you an address or they give you some information that mm-hmm. is quite important. And two people, I think, talked about uh, talking with doctors on the phone and they speak too fast. And, you know, you want to ac- access medical care and all of a sudden you're not sure what they are saying to you. The visa nightmare is another, it's another thing. You know, you hear on the radio, especially after Brexit, oh, you know, what's the big deal? You just get a visa. Yeah, you try and get a visa, especially as an artist. Artists, are we useful? Now there is this thing with the home office, you know, you get points if what you do is useful. Is art useful? I mean, I'd say a big yes, but I'm not part of the government. Do you know what I mean? And then there are some very specific themes, like we have two women in the group who both had experiences as refugees, one as a as a child from Iran and another and another one from uh, Iraq as a kind of a young young woman. And they both talked about how strange it is to basically flee to the country that has caused you to flee in the first place. That's really interesting. Yeah. Lana, her family ran away to the United States, which was part of, you know, the the, the reasons why Iran <laughs> became what, what 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 it became. And then she came to to Britain, and uh, Yasmin, uh, yeah, she I think she went first to Lebanon and then to Britain, and and again, you know, Britain was part of the I- Iraq War, and so it, it's it's quite interesting for them to be to be trying to be artists in the country that partially people back home really resent. It's that kind of duality. And duality is another theme. Mirai Sildum, she is Egyptian originally, but she migrated as a child. And so again, she now has a British accent, but she she lives surrounded at home by a, a culture that is her parents' culture. So, you know, how do you negotiate Especially if you migrate as a child, you want, you're desperate to fit in, and then you almost feel like you're betraying where you're coming from, which is something that probably even second generation migrants feel a lot. Uh, yeah. You know, people yeah. uh, who feel almost like suspended between two cultures. So, one that I noticed was that female foreign bodies are often objectified and sexualized. Yeah. And that comes up in Gail Lacornick's piece, she's Brazilian. Yeah. It comes up in Mireille Sidom's piece, who you've just mentioned, who's Egyptian. Yeah. And also in Sabrina Richmond's piece, who you also mentioned, yes. she's from South Africa. And obviously, women's bodies being sexualized isn't something only experienced by migrant women, but there yeah. seems to be this extra sharp edge to it. So, for instance, the word exotic isn't the compliment it's often portrayed as at all, is it? No, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's this kind of, uh, you're seen as exotic, so you're seen as kind of a strange creature. And then there is all the kind of uh, things associated with being exotic. For certain people being being almost like this kind of dark, predatory, seductress <laughs> that, that, you know, the family wrecker and, and, the, and you know, the lover and, and all that. For other, for instance, partially Inyang touches on it as well. For East Asian women and also Southeast Asian women, there is much more a sense of oh, you're exotic and, uh, and perceived as quite 
tame mm -hmm. in people's imagination that you know east asian women often come with this idea of being very nice so uh, you know kind of uh, ready to 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 please so there's a lot attached to to exotic and what happens when you don't feel like because for instance you know i am italian and again italian oh italian women monica bellucci i'm five foot one and completely flat chested <laughs> <laughs> so i remember looking for work as an actor and it's like italian curvy seductive think monica bellucci and i'm like yeah great <laughs> sure i'm here do you know who looks like monica bellucci monica bellucci that's it exactly <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, you go to Italy and it's full of women looking like Monica Bellucci. We are all like that. <laughs> I guess we've covered some of the reasons in, in our chat so far, but how are female migrants treated differently from male migrants? Uh, well, obviously, there are, uh, there's a lot of, of, um, of stuff in common. The stuff about language, for instance, surely is shared by both male and female. I think, uh, as we were saying, the main difference is how our bodies are perceived mm -hmm. and this feeling of being exotic. And I think we get patronized quite a bit as well. There is a sense of uh, yeah, always feeling this need to justify yourself and to change shape and to protect uh, yourself and, and your body. And I think that is specifically female. I think often, and we are talking stereotype, the stereotype of the male migrant is, you know, the benefit scrounger or the aggressive one, the potential criminal. You know, there's a lot of things attached to the idea of male migrants mm -hmm. or, or all this kind of a, uh, idea that, that migrants are all there to take something from you. It's usually male I think for female, either we're seen as the victim or, as I said, you know, as the, the, the beautiful body. Also in terms of visas, and that, came, that comes up in uh, Becca McFadden's monologue, also there are some very strange types of visas that are attached to spouses that are particularly used by women. And, you know, so there is almost like the assumption you are here as somebody else's attachment. Yep. As we record, seven out of the ten stories from Things I Am Not are available for a listen, and you absolutely should do that. So where can people do that, please? There are several ways you can access the podcast. You can go on the website, which is thingsiamnot.com, or you can look it up on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Also, what I wanted to say is that it, the podcast is interactive, so you can actually send us uh, your creative responses if you feel so inclined. I've got one last question to squeeze in, and that is that Legal Aliens was set up to bridge a gap in British theatre when it comes to representation. And as I said, you've been going 10 years as a theatre company and you've been living in the UK for 23 years. So I wondered, how is that gap looking these days? Have things changed for the better, she asked optimistically. You know what? It's a, it's a very strange thing. I moved to this country in the midst of the new Labour things can only get better kind of uh, situation. So where everyone thought it was like, hey, we're so cool Britannia. Spice Girls, you know, that was the situation. <laughs> and at the time, I felt incredibly peculiar. I felt like I was the only one who wasn't British trying to do theatre. The theatre was incredibly just white, British and um, middle class, I would say. Mm -hmm. But funnily enough, there seemed to be, at the time, more interest 
towards international theatre. So um, although in terms of diversity, it was very white British middle class, I don't think that migrants or foreigners were seen as a possible threat somehow. So Mm -hmm. in a way, there was a certain amount of curiosity for what was going on outside Britain. And then I think there was a shift in culture. There was the big uh, 2008 crisis and so on. And then migrants became, as we were saying before, the scapegoat for pretty much everything that was going wrong in in, in this country. On one side... There was this great kind of awareness that theatre had to be more diverse. So there were much more initiatives to include Black, Asian people. Anyone wasn't white. There's finally more awareness about trying to include people who are not working class, disabled people, more more attention to to gender, uh, etc. But the international side, I really felt, was politicised. For me, I felt almost like venues and producers were scared of looking too international because there was this kind of growing nationalism going on that was permeating so many things. It felt like things were really going backwards. And now through lockdown, funnily enough, and through all these conversations, through movements like migrants in theatre, migrants in culture, there seems to be a little bit of a gap to try and have those conversations and say, okay, great, you have acknowledged that theatre needed to be more diverse, but diversity should also include migrants. You should include anyone who's part of our communities. Because some people say, you know, why do you call yourself migrant and not an international artist? And I think we kind of claim the word back for ourselves because, first of all, bureaucratically and according to the Home Office, that's what we are. But more to the point, because I think international kind of suggests, like, when Julia Binoche comes to the Barbican, she's an international artist. You know, she lives in France. She's a star. She does her show and goes home. Well, we, we live here. Laura, this has been so fascinating. And having listened to, like I say, five out of the 10, I heartily recommend that our listeners, Thank after you. listening to all our podcasts, obviously, they go and listen to your podcast because it is brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we stick the patriarchy in the sim bin as we discuss all things women's sport. I'm referring, of course, to the rugby there, and in case you missed it, which you might have done, to be fair, because the patriarchy. Specifically, I'm talking about the women's Six Nations, which concluded last weekend. As the leaders of their respective pools, England took on France at Twickenham. It was a closely fought match, played largely defensively, and though England led by 7-0 after the first half, the French team fought back in the second to put them under pressure. On the verge of collapse, Emily Scarrett scored a penalty to put the Red Roses in front and secured their third consecutive win at the tournament. Excellent stuff. Now on to less exciting news, which you'll no doubt have seen reported on excessively even. The ill-fated European Super League, which lasted only slightly longer than Germany's 1940 invasion of Denmark. Six hours, fact fans. Twitter was at its absolute finest, I have to say. And my favourite meme, although there were many, was of Steve Coogan as Guy Hennity, if you remember, the spoof soap opera The Bureau on the very excellent The Day Today, saying, I'm joining the European Super League for an hour. That was lols. 
But yeah, what a bunch of absolute bellends the owners of the so-called Big Six Premier League clubs are. In case you don't know what I'm talking about, along with a few Spanish and Italian clubs, Manchester City, Manchester United, Arsenal, Tottenham, Liverpool and Chelsea announced last week that they were starting their own league. A bit like the Champions League, except that they were guaranteed places in it every season unlike in the Champions League, regardless of their success in their own domestic tournaments. So, like, you know, not very competitive, but, like, you know, loads of guaranteed money to take back to the Premier League and continue to widen the financial disparity between them and the rest of the teams in the league. Oh, and with no thought or consideration of the impacts, they were going to take their women's teams with them to enter into their own non-competitive competitive league. And I am talking about men's football here, so uh, apologies for that, but here are some more facts for you fact fans Spurs haven't won a domestic league for 60 years they've not won at a UEFA Cup for almost 40 years They've not won an FA Cup for 30 years, and they've not even won a Football League Cup for more than a decade. It's actually only in the last decade that they've finished consistently in the top six, and in that last decade they've only finished in the top four six times. In fairness, I could be similarly disparaging about Arsenal, and I'd certainly have some words about Manchester United on the basis of their performance over the last few years. Let's face it, Chelsea and Manchester City are only up there because their squads are entirely manufactured through exorbitant wealth. But let's stick with Spurs for a minute because if you're talking about competing with the creme de la creme of European football, I'm sorry but that is an embarrassing record. I mean, there is so much that's wrong with this, it's hard to know where to start. And that is a view shared by an overwhelming majority of fans, and I'm not talking like 52% overwhelming majority, I'm talking like basically everyone, who rightly kicked off about the planned league. And by the end of the day, Manchester City and Chelsea were already out of it, with the entire thing collapsing the following day. Since the formation of the league was announced, there were political interventions, people left their jobs, fans literally took to the streets in protest, FIFA condemned it. It was big. But... As you may have picked up on in today's BT, I'm unlikely to be taking any lessons on moral values from FIFA, or Boris Johnson for that matter. And certainly not Oliver Dowden, he can fuck right off. I think you are quite right to be pissed off about it, and I enjoyed seeing football fans coming together as a force for good. I just think it's interesting how we apply our moral compasses when it comes to football. For example... Absolutely fine to go ahead with a World Cup next year, which we all know is being built by people who are working in conditions that can only be described as modern slavery. Racism and other forms of discrimination are bad, but, you know, why don't we take ourselves off social media rather than the perpetrators of said discrimination? Okay, um, makes absolutely no sense to me, but, um, but fine. And as ever, the women's game remains an afterthought, really, in the inception of the league, and in the protests against it. The whole thing really does smack of some dudes in suits discussing it. Oh, what about the Women's League, though? They have a Champions League as well. Oh, do they? Oh, OK, well, um, we'll have a Super League for them too, then. Why not? You people want equality. Anyway, some better, albeit slightly frustrating news about women's football. You may remember we spoke about a groundbreaking new deal for broadcast rights to the Women's Super League a little while ago on this very podcast. Well, as part of a new report which was published last week, a survey of 5,000 football fans found that, no way for it, 
there is an appetite for women's football. In fact, the Run Repeat survey found that if the women's game were actually easily accessible to watch on TV in the UK, it would see a 296.7% increase in viewers. Now, I find that a slightly tricky stat because under current circumstances, it's not regularly easily accessible on the TV. So what is a 296% rise in... um? no one and what i mean by that is it's not clear to me from the information they've put out what they're counting as the current viewing figures is it all the currently available women's football on all the channels i i just don't know but i would say it's patently fucking obvious that more people would watch it if it were easy to watch similarly i think more people would go to watch matches in person if women's matches weren't largely played in random and inaccessible training pitches in the middle of nowhere as opposed to actual stadiums and grounds nearby proper infrastructure i don't drive for example and i live in london so if i wanted to take lyra to see chart on women's i i literally i don't know how i would actually do it An interesting thing, I thought, however, was that the survey also found that considerably more men currently watch women's football than do women. And that's like 61% to about 34%. I actually don't find that surprising at all. I think football fans watch football and more football fans are men. And if we want to tap into that market, we need to start making it more accessible in lots of ways other than just putting it on the telly. But I will come back to that point another time. That's all from me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, in an odd twist on my usual feelings, which film made me ever so grateful for my sports bra this week? This week we watched 1981's Gregory's Girl, which I referred to last week as the only British rom-com that existed when I was growing up. Now that's clearly an exaggeration, but not much of one. I think it's easy for anyone who doesn't remember the British film industry pre-1994 to believe that it was always thriving, and that was very much not the case. Whatever you make of Four Weddings and a Funeral and Richard Curtis's oeuvre in general, it should be noted that it altered the fortunes of the British rom-com. What I mean when I say it was the only British rom-com when I was growing up is that if you asked people to name one, Gregory's Girl would have been their likely response, Mm -hmm. whether they'd seen it or not. And despite all of this, until last week, I hadn't. Set in and around a Cumbernauld secondary school and rocking what I could only call a Grange Hill aesthetic... The coming-of-age comedy was written and directed by Bill Forsyth and stars John Gordon Sinclair, Dee Hepburn and Claire Grogan. It was released to favourable reviews and ranked number 30 in the British Film Institute's list of the top 100 British films and number 29 on Entertainment Weekly's list of the 50 best high school movies. Made on a shoestring, the cast often had to wear their own or borrowed clothes, although Dee Hepburn was given six weeks of football training at Partick Thistle to play Dorothy, the girl who replaces the titular Gregory as the team striker. I know our listeners north of the border are going to be fidgeting in their seats, wondering why there's a certain word I've not yet mentioned, so here goes. Gregory's Girl is a mix of ribaldry, surrealness, understated sentiment, effortless charm and young children swearing. Is there a word that encompasses all of that? Sure there is. Scottish. (laughs) The film was dubbed with anglicised Scottish (laughs) accents, whatever that means, for the original American theatre release, 
although it wasn't a just the Yanks who struggled with the accent. Legendary film critic Barry Norman admitted, I couldn't understand some of the cast's accents. Didn't stop him being a big fan, though. In fact, he later described Bill Forsyth as one of the most influential original voices who'd ever worked in the British film industry. And he wasn't alone in marking Forsyth as a singular talent. He won the BAFTA for Best Original Screenplay for Gregory's Girl and also received a London Critics Circle Film Award, the Special Achievement Award. So, the plot for our non-Scottish listeners goes thus. Ludicrously long-legged Gregory, (laughs) played by Sinclair, is drifting somewhat obliviously through life, hanging out with his friends who have one good jacket between them, peeping on women. And yes, we will revisit that in a bit. His life changes when he is removed as a striker for his school's football team. And when the PE teacher advertises for a replacement, Dorothy turns up and immediately ups the quality of the team by about a thousand percent. (laughs) Instead of resenting her for this, Gregory becomes infatuated to the degree that he almost becomes a feminist. That (laughs) modern girls, modern boys, it's tremendous line I quoted earlier is just double chef's kiss if that is a thing. And that's about it for the plot. In the tradition of all great teen dramas, it's just about being a teenager. That might explain why Gregory's Two Girls, a follow-up made in 1999, didn't capture the imagination so much. Although, to be clear, I have not watched that. So, let's start with you, Jen. What did you make of Gregory's Girl? I thought it was all right. I thought that the acting was not great in a lot of it, and that turned me off a bit, I have to say. Uh, I know most of them are kids, and so that's a slightly unfair criticism in a way. But, um, yeah, it it wasn't, like, my favourite thing in the world. I thought she was a very good footballer. I thought she uh, actually was a a very good footballer, and I liked the plot a lot, and I did think that um, John Gordon Sinclair was a very charming lead as well. And it's something I thought about quite a lot uh, as a teenager about girls playing on boys football teams and you know whether that was a thing that might happen at some point in the future so um, yeah it's a nice plot and it's you know it was all right that's what I thought. Mickey? I thought it was a delight I was yeah I agree with you. Utterly charmed by it I'd seen it before and quite a few times actually there was a period when it was on the telly all the time and it felt like actually when you suggested we were going to watch it, I was like, oh, I think I've seen this too many times. But I don't think I'd sat and watched it all the way through and I certainly haven't done that as an adult. And I just thought it really beautifully and gently captured all of the tumultuousness that goes with being a teenager. And I love that it doesn't do the usual rom-com stuff, sure, Dorothy is the the idol for all of the boys in the school. And a little bit of a spoiler alert, Gregory's girl at the end is not Dorothy. She sets him up with someone that she thinks will suit him better. I'm not even sure that Gregory's girl at the end of it is Claire Grogan. The, the person that Gregory tells is his girl at the end of him. Is his at little the sister. Is his little sister, which is really delightful. It's really Really lovely. delightful. And obviously it's... We're going to talk about this scene, so I'm going to bring it up. The scene at the beginning that opens the Mm. film is a group of teenage boys perving on a woman who does not know she's being watched getting undressed through a window. And it was a bit like, oh, my God, is this going to be like confessions of a Scottish teenager? 
But even that... <laughs> Window cleaner. <laughs> even that is kind of sweet because one of them is so overcome by the sight of tits that he faints. And it's just... I don't want to use the phrase boys going to be boys, but it is that, you know, that curiosity goes both ways of the girls wanting to know about the boys, the boys wanting to know about the girls. This is a very heteronormative, obviously, film. But that curiosity goes both ways and the girls are trying to find out about the boys as well. And what makes it a feminist film, I think, is that when Dorothy gets on the football team, the PE teacher is a little bit dubious at first, and then he just celebrates her and is like, yes, yeah, she's great. The head teacher says, I think this is amazing. The kids don't treat her like a freak. They treat her like she's some sort of hero. And it's just accepted. Is it a little bit odd? Yes, because it would have been a little bit odd. But after the initial, oh, if women were meant to play football, their tits would be somewhere else line, they all just get on with it. There is a bit of a weird bit though when the when she's playing football and then afterwards like she basically gets like touched and kissed and whatever by like literally every other boy on the pitch. Isn't it more of a celebration because she scores I a think goal? It's a I think it's like when Hannah last week pulled a t-shirt over her head and did a knee yeah. slide. I felt it was a bit more like pouring at her than that, and she didn't seem to mind. It seemed to all be like done in good spirits. I just think like it. That wouldn't happen today. Well, Gregory is outraged by it, but Gregory is outraged by it because he doesn't get. He, it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think actually that's really key as well. Something you've said there, Jen. She she doesn't seem to mind throughout everything. The person in control in this film is Dorothy. Mm. The girls are the ones in control. The boys are just like, please let me even get close to them and let me tell them about how veal is made. Is that a chat line? I don't know. I just want to talk to a woman. And the girls are like, oh, for God's sake. Or they lead the way. And I I thought that was just so lovely. Yeah, I was utterly, utterly charmed by it. And just John Gordon Sinclair, who obviously is Gordon John Sinclair in this, but then had to change his name for equity reasons. Just him just running around the playground trying to sneak into the school is hilarious physical comedy because he is six foot two and gangly. Yeah, <laughs> I loved it. I had a lovely time. He's got some beautiful lines, just some absolutely cracking lines. But at the start, I obviously, the peeping, I was like, ah, shit. And what won it over for me was that, that period of, I mean, about five minutes, which is pretty early on, when... The first thing that really made me laugh, because I can say it's quite surreal, is that he is like the tallest person on earth, and yet he has a long mirror in his bedroom that goes width <laughs> And I don't know why, but that really amused me. And then he's making that catastrophic amount of noise in the kitchen, and then he goes out, and there's all those babies, which is so surreal, but yet so funny. And then his dad tries to get someone to run him over in, a, in an emergency <laughs> stop. And I just thought, I, I don't know, once I'd clicked into that part of that's why it's funny... The whole thing became funny. There's so many funny lines. I wrote down a few, but I think my favourite might be, have you given the petty show any more thought? <laughs> Which is just, <laughs> like, only if you do it in a Scottish accent is it funny. But also, if I die, my mother gets her windows washed for 25 <laughs> years. Seen... Which is really funny. And when the school journalist turns up to talk to her, because it's a big story for the school newspaper because Dorothy's playing on the team and they're discussing whether they're going to use her or the girl that had the triplets. <laughs> That's the story. Which, again, is just ridiculously funny, I thought. There's a bit when they're selling posters of her and I can't remember what the line is, but it's quite nice. 
so sorry, this isn't ideal because I don't remember what it was. But there's a bit where he's selling posters of her and uh, he's like, oh, you charged me 25p or whatever. And he's like, yeah. oh, I don't make the rules or whatever. Talk like, to the, talk box. To the <laughs> box or something like that. And it's just like, it's very good. No, no there were bits about it that I found to be, you know, funny and charming and whatever. The Peeping Tom thing, I didn't think that was like offensive per se because I think you're right it's curiosity more than anything else and and I think it's probably quite realistic as well that's probably mm. the kind of shit that mm-hmm. little boys get up to got up to I don't know not that little boys teenagers I guess but I did find it a bit odd in what is ostensibly like a kid's film right it's for teenagers I would have thought it's pitched at See, I rather think than adults most films made about teenagers aren't for teenagers they're for adults yes. who then remember what it's like to be a teenager I, I agree with that but in terms of like classification what what was the classification of it pg it was See, that's quite interesting, I think, that it's a PG with tits in. That, again, that, you wouldn't get that now, I don't think. Yeah, maybe not. Do you know what is really interesting about it too? And this isn't just because it's Scottish, but watching it, I could see it as a massive forerunner to train spotting. That humour, the way it's done, the naturalistic performances, but with that mm. surrealism in there as well. The little boy with the crazy thick hair the one that likes looking at trucks, his friend, who's got just incredibly They've thick all hair, got incredibly tiny thick head, hair. and really, the one that likes looking at trucks. Okay. He is really a proto-spud, I would yeah. say. Yeah, everything about him seems really spudish. But I also think that the sort of the surreal angle, there's a lot of absolutely that I think probably drew, yes. the comedy series that yes. probably drew on this absolutely. as well. Yeah. The stuff that's going on in the background. The, I mean, there's a penguin walking around in the background of this for no apparent reason. And it's just silly, but but silly in a way that feels quite Scottish. Mm. There's a, a really famous Scottish comedian in it. Is he called Chick Parker? I might have got his name wrong. I think so, yeah. And he is, I think he's supposed to be the head of the school because he's in the robes. And just when he's playing the piano, just because he wants to play the piano, and he goes, oh, small boys, go away. <laughs> He just <laughs> them on. There are so many yeah. moments that made me just giggle and smile. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed... I've seen it again. I really enjoyed myself. We talked about this the other day, the scene where he's teaching her a move and the they do trap. it over and over again mm. and end up dancing. It's lovely. It's really just a lovely, charming scene. Yeah, the offside trap becomes disco dancing. And the PE teacher, I think... Obviously, he's, he's growing his little moustache. He is the stereotypical PE teacher in that he's kind of mocked by the other teachers who have girls who are sending them love notes. And they are very like, no, they're 13, there's no way, which is really nice. But it's like, oh, God, is he going to be portrayed as a bit creepy now there's a girl on his team? And he's not. He's he's an outsider as well. And he just welcomes her and wants mm-hmm. her to be a better footballer. And then there's a gorgeous moment later when you just see him through the glass of his greenhouse. You can't hear him, but he's talking to to his plants in the same way he talks to the members of his football team <laughs> adorable john gordon sinclair's in traces now which is val mcdermott and amelia bulmore's series isn't it mm. yeah he's in that yeah. now because he just sort of vanished he didn't really do much else acting wise but now he's uh he's back on the telly box if you want to see more of his lovely gangliness <laughs> his ridiculously long legs one other thing i've kind of mentioned him the window cleaner I think there's something else that's really spot on, which is that he's a year older than them, that kid, and he's left school. 
and how you feel about people who are older uh-huh. and are in the real world. I thought that was done really well, that they all sort of follow around. Here. He's like a man now, and they're all still boys, and they treat him like that. And he's he's talking about stuff that's really stupid, and they're like, ooh, because, yeah, he is a man in their eyes. He's got that and, life experience. And, yeah, as an adult, you can look and go, no, he's just a year older than you. That's all that is. He's got a job, though, hasn't he? He's got a job that yeah. might in some way granting more access to women and that seems to be their like it's a goal that they don't massively try to follow through and it does feel it could have felt really pervy and like oh god women as objects but it just feels really innocent you know when Gregory does end up on a date with Claire Grogan what do they do they lie on the grass and they dance and it's just so Mm. sweet and innocent and actually He's nervous. He's as nervous as she is. The teenagers aren't like... So Porky's came out at the same time. Mm. And Porky's is like drilling holes so that they can look into the girls' changing rooms. It's tits and arse. The boys are those American sort of super studs. And this isn't... This is the antithesis of this. This is more like reality, which is like everyone's just trying to work out what the fuck to do with the opposite sex. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I think I know what everyone's going to say, but for the sake of, of sticking to the format, Gregory's Girl, rated or dated? I thought it was a bit dated in some ways, but that's not to say it wasn't charming. It's very 80s, but absolutely rated for me. Yeah, I would agree. Rated. Jen, we're, we're having some more masculinity next week, aren't we? We are. Very, very masculine indeed. I've never watched this film the whole way through, which is why I'm picking it. Next week we are watching Highway to the (laughs) Danger Zone, Um, Top Gun. It's also what I call my pubic hair, the Highway to the Danger Zone. (laughs) I thought you had Top Gun. And Top Gun. Standard issue for all women.